The Green Beret Foundation, which provides U.S. Army Special Forces soldiers with ongoing support, has a new president and chief executive officer. This won't be Charlie Iacono's first role in a position to help service members and veterans, as he formerly held a senior position with the USO. I recently got the chance to speak with Charlie to find out more about his new mission, as well as that of the Green Beret Foundation. The Green Beret Foundation is a small foundation, but incredibly mighty organization, as I like to characterize it. Uh, We are the premier not-for-profit organization, community impact organization for those who are Green Berets, uh, both former, past Green Berets, current active duty, uh, as well as future. Uh, And then I always like to talk about uh, the importance that we are also inclusive of family members. So we have, you know, really kind of an an outlook on we have to care for the entire community and very much part of that community is 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 those that are left home and our green berets are deployed overseas and downrange and you know our programs range from casualty support health and wellness support which i like to classify as mental uh, health resiliency and uh, family support you know if, if family members are struggling uh, children need support we have a very comprehensive family support program and then, of course, we have our next bridge line program, which is our traditional transition support. So when active duty uh, service members are beginning to transition out of the military after their distinguished service and career, uh, we help them find that next ridge line, which will look and possibly be something entirely different than from what they're used to doing. And so we want to really focus on really the holistic aspect of the individual, both the Green Beret and their family. And then, of course, we have our Gold Star and Surviving Families program that we are are very fortunate and honored. It's a sacred program. It's a program, obviously, just like our casualty support program, that we hope that the utilization of of those programs are low, but we, we nevertheless prepare ourselves to address any kind of crisis that could could be occurring or could be um, could be happening within the community, both family and service member. Yeah, I wanted to focus on the transition aspect just because uh, from a special forces standpoint, is it safe to say that there's no different, there's no more different transition than for the folks who are serving in the special forces to going into civilian life? You know, obviously veteran transition is difficult for everyone, but but for special forces specifically, just because their skill set is so unique, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, no, I, it, that is a fantastic question, and it's, it's a great observation. We are very fortunate at the foundation. Uh, kind of our, our motto of our transitions program is from team room to boardroom, and we really help Green Berets transitions, transition from the active duty space to their next great adventure. And, and you know, you couldn't have said it better, Eric. Th- these, are, these are service members that are so highly trained and very specialized aspects of, of warfare and we recognize now, having been in the nonprofit space for, for 20 plus years, and obviously having a lot of friends in the, the corporate space, these are incredible assets to bring into an organization. And really, our job at the foundation is not only to help them navigate their VA and benefit claims program benefits, but really to begin to have conversations with them early on to say, what do you want your next chapter to be? What do you want it to look like? Do you want it to be challenging or just as challenging as, as, as your time as an FS soldier was? Or do you want to look to something that, you know, really feeds kind of your passion in your life? Again, it kind of gets back to that mentality um, that we spend so much time talking about at the foundation and, and our incredible uh, leaders at the board of directors uh, speak about really caring for the, the holistic um, mindset of, of both mind, body, and spirit and making sure that when they transition into that next career and that next chapter, that they are not only readily equipped for 
that next ridge line, but they're also given the opportunity to, to really evaluate what they want to do. And we recognize that this could be a very bumpy chapter in their, their life story. Um, and we, we work tirelessly at the foundation to kind of smooth that pathway um, to the best of our abilities. And we leverage a diverse group of veteran organizations that uh, work specifically in select areas. I'm really excited to talk about in my chapter uh, being here at the foundation, really bringing the transitions program to the next level and working with some of our, our largest uh, defense contracting companies uh, here in the United States and making sure that we build a diverse portfolio of partners that no, not only have incredible job opportunities and career opportunities for these service members, but really you know, diversify our portfolio of interest. So when we go to, to chat with the next uh, Green Beret about their transition, they see the value add the Green Beret Foundation brings to their, their chapter and their career search. The other focus that I wanted to touch on, and obviously, once again, being a family member of any active service member has challenges for across the board. But are there, what are the unique challenges for those who are related to those in the special forces? Just because, you know, I, I imagine that there's a level of secrecy of, you know, what they're allowed to discuss with their family, and that can bring its own challenges. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I think having never served myself, but having had a number of family members uh, from past generations and, and cousins that have served and close friends that have served, the challenges that are encountered for family members, I think, is an incredible weight that they carry on their shoulders, uh, whether it's a five-year-old son or daughter uh, or an 18-year-old son or daughter that's kind of navigating their transition from high school to maybe college or maybe entering the service themselves. And then, you know, the spouses, there's, there's a weight on their shoulders that is really hard to describe unless you have experienced it yourself. Then to layer on top of that, uh, being a spouse or a family of a, an SF um, service member, specifically the Green Berets, is, is also very challenging and trying. Um, I like to explain it that the, the emotional energy uh, and the complexity of, of navigating that relationship is, is, has to be one of the hardest uh, experiences a spouse or a child uh, will encounter. But we also see the grace in that and the fact that it, it, they are a support mechanism to the Green Berets. Um, and obviously they are uh, thinking about their loved ones uh, when they're deployed. And obviously those that are left behind and, and, and you know, anxiously awaiting their return are, are thinking about them and praying for them. And I think one of the most incredible things the foundation does is, is we support the family in that. From beginning to end, we look at the, the need to be there as an asset, um, as a, um, an additional team member in their support circle. You know, we're going to really begin to focus in, in my tenure as the president and CEO to ensuring that our programs uh, not only meet the current needs of family members and Green Berets, but the future needs and what those needs might be. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of exploratory discovery phase conversations and interviews with, with those who are in our community because we want this foundation to be representative of not only the incredible community and the storied history of, of the Green Berets, but really that next generation too, uh, because we don't know what the next global conflict will look like. We don't know what the needs will be for those returning Green Berets, but I, I'm a big believer in the fact that you have to plan and uh, orient your organization to be able to execute on when those needs are identified. And, you know, the, the, your point or your question of not being able to share things and, and understanding the complexities of that, that also has to be a weight on their shoulders. 
But, you know, I, I have to say, you know, some of the strongest people I know uh, are military spouses, some of the strongest and most uh, incredibly gifted young children and young young teenagers and young adults are children of service members, uh, both SF uh, through, from the SF community, as well as other branches of the military. The United States military not only safeguards our freedoms here at home uh, and overseas and, and really are, is the defender of, of freedom and democracy across the globe, but I also like to say that the United States military builds that next generation of leaders. And, and so many of those leaders are found in the, the military families and spouses. And uh, we are just really privileged and honored to work with them at the Green Beret Foundation. Charlie Iacono is the newly appointed president and CEO of the Green Beret Foundation. To find this interview, along with more information about the organization, you can go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. 
from that point on, I committed myself, you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, 
I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.